One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Good to talk again. A packed agenda today, as usual. We've had inflation data out of Ireland and the United States over the last few days. We've had a Bank of England interest rate increase. We've had a lot of banking data and analysis out of the United States that I think is worth talking about. Um, And I know you were tickled pink by a piece in The Economist magazine about nimbyism and so on during the week that you want to talk about. And we also had, of course, the creation of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, or at least the announcement of the creation of a Sovereign Wealth Fund in Ireland. So I'd just like to get your perspective on that. But if I could start off, Chris, by looking at the Irish inflation data that was published yesterday, um, the headline rate has fallen to 7.2% from 7.7% the previous month. And electricity and natural gas prices, you know, and diesel, petrol, having a downward pressure on the headline rate here. But there's, there's a couple of things I think that stand out. I mean, mortgage interest costs in the year to April were up by 41%, uh, up by 4.8% during the month of April. So that's reflecting what the European Central Bank is doing. But one that is probably more topical, certainly in an Irish context at the moment, is what's happening on the food side. Um, Food price inflation up by 0.6% during the month of April, which is a chunky increase in a month. And the year-on-year rate is now running at 13.1%. But in my view, somewhat bizarrely, um, some government ministers called in the retail grocery multiples during the week and basically told them they need to cut grocery prices. And we had the Labour Party coming out yesterday talking about some sort of super tax on the retail grocery multiples. Um, In my view, this sort of government intervention 
in the running of private businesses is absolutely bizarre. And the question is, where does it stop? But I will grant that since the March 2020 and the beginning of COVID and the intervention that government has engaged in since then, I guess it has changed the ground rules in terms of um, the role of government in the economy. So we are where we are in a sense. But in relation to that food price piece, I just like to, you know, go go into a, a little bit of statistical analysis here. Okay, um, I take January twenty one as the base month. Okay, and between January twenty one and April of this year, overall inflation was up by sixteen point eight percent. Food price inflation up by eighteen point four percent, and within that, vegetable prices up thirteen point two percent. Milk prices up by 35.1%. Okay, these are hefty increases in the price of food. But to put it in context, for the previous 20 years, average food prices had been declining, largely because of cheaper imports, number one. And secondly, we saw the growth of the market share of the discounters, as in Aldi and Lidl, over that 20-year period, grow from about 5% to just under 26% at the moment. So as these discounters built up market share, you know, that created massive competition in the retail grocery space, putting downward pressure on prices. But the in the context of the current debate and the government intervention, um, I think it is worth sort of considering what the food supply chain looks like. Um, and I'm simplifying a little bit here, but basically we have the primary producer or the farmer at one end. We have the manufacturer or the processor in the middle. And then we have the retailer at the top of the chain. Okay, and you may have wholesalers and distributors in there as well. But basically, we're talking about three components. But if you look at what's been happening at the primary production end of the market, uh, between, uh, as I said to you there, between January 21 and April 23, overall food price inflation increased by 18.4%. But over that period, the input costs for farmers increased by 51.7%. You know, energy costs up by 62%. Electricity up by 99.2%. Fertilizer prices up by 181.6%. So if farmers are facing those sorts of dramatic increases in input costs, that is obviously going to reflect itself with higher prices for the consumer. Jim, can I stop you there for a second and just ask you about those those two numbers? You talked about for farmers, their in input prices went up what? Um, overall, up by 51.7%. Prices they charged the intermediate processor and or the retailer went up by what? About 27%. But that suggests that, that farmers margins collapsed is that right uh well the from and certainly in the last six months when i'm picking up particularly from the producers of liquid milk these are the dairy farmers who produce milk uh sort of directly that goes into the carton whereas a lot of other milk production goes into uh processed dairy products but um yes certainly it would appear that they're the, the margins are being squeezed there, particularly over the last six months. I, I just wonder whether those two measures are all-encompassing. I mean, I I think it, it's absolutely right to say that 
some input costs went up 51% and some output prices went up by less than half that. But I can't, I can't believe those measures cover 100% of farmers' inputs and 100% of farmers' outputs. Otherwise, you'd just see loads of farmers going out of business, wouldn't you? Well, the difference is made up with um, EU subsidy. Right. Okay, that's, that, that's what maintains farmers' incomes. It's right. e- EU subsidies, you know, the direct payments from the European Union. I'm not in the EU now, Jim, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, what it means that the common agricultural policy, Chris, since its inception, has basically subsidised farmers financially to produce. And um, it's, it's, it's part of the whole political ethos of the European Union, yeah, where food security and the importance of having uh, domestically produced food... But the substantive was, point here is... Yeah. If, you're look, if you're looking for price gouging for greedflation, don't look at the farmers. That's the conclusion. Really what I'm saying here is, and I wouldn't be looking at the retailers either, to be honest. Well, no, um, I, as I, what I thought you were doing, you were setting up a thought experiment and saying, let, let, if the government has called in these people to beat them over the head with a, the, the suspicion must be that they are, somebody somewhere is price gouging. And what you're doing in time on a Jim Power fashion is looking at the data to see if there is any evidence for price gouging. So you've started painting a picture that says, okay, let's break it down into its component parts. The first part, the farmers, no evidence there. So um, I guess we move on to the next component, don't we? Yeah, and the problem with the next component and the next component with the processors in the middle, and particularly with the retailers, uh, data on margins is not published. You know, so we, we, we don't know what sort of what has happened their margins over the last 12 months. But I'm just and, and I know this is an incomplete analysis, but I'm looking at the cost of food production. It has increased dramatically. So inevitably, you would expect that to materialize in higher prices for the consumer. OK, um, and what what has happened in the last six months is that energy prices are declining. Um, we know that fertilizer prices are starting to decline. Um, and you would expect that in the next 12 months to feed through. And indeed, what's happening at a global commodity price level, you would expect that to feed through to lower prices again for the consumer. Uh, but the problem, of course, is that, uh, you know, the, the milk, the milk and the veg and the, you know, the other farm products that have been produced at the moment, um, they are being, well, some of it is being produced by inputs that were bought six, 12 months ago, you know, at elevated prices. So that has to feed through the system. And, um, but, but I, what I'm really trying to say here, Chris, is that I think this is populist political bullshit again. You know, it's a deeply unpopular government trying to curry favor with the electorate. And I actually think, uh, government is barking up the wrong tree. I'd be much more impressed if I saw government actually going after the energy companies. Um, we have spoken about the collapse that has occurred in um, natural gas prices. Oil prices have fallen significantly. And um, the the energy companies, of course, will say, well, actually, we have bought forward um, our energy. So um, until those contracts run out, prices for the consumer and for businesses are not going to come down and there may be some truth in that there probably is but on the other hand pardon the pun the moment energy prices start to rise they were passed on to consumers and businesses almost immediately so i i i I, and of course the other point chris is that we've spoken about 
the profits of companies like Shell BP have increased dramatically in the last 12 months. So I, I, I would take government seriously if actually it was looking at those issues rather than barking up the tree of retail consumer prices. Well, I, I think that it's a fairly, in the scale of things, Jim, I hate to disagree with you, but a fairly harmless exercise in populism in calling retailers in for a cup of coffee one morning and saying, look, we all know what the game is here. We've got, we've got to pretend to beat you up because of your high prices, which we know are not your fault. So that was an exercise in pure populism, yeah, but in the wider scheme of things, it's not hardly Bolsonaro or Trump-esque style populism. It's a game that's played. It's played in the UK as well, actually, to, in a different way. There's lots of suspicion about food prices here. And to me, it, it, as you have posed it, it's an analytical question. Have profit margins at any stage in the food and grocery production process from inputs to outputs risen? And the answer is, we don't think so, because there's no evidence for it. But equally, could the retailers, Jim, simply be colluding in an old-fashioned tacit way? They're not getting around a table and saying, let's keep our prices high or, God forbid, even put them up. Um, what they're doing is that they've noticed what price competition has done to them, done to their margins for the last 10 years. You rightly said that food price inflation has been negative for years up until recently in Ireland. The competition has been acute on the high street in the UK as well. And could it be that there's been a, almost a subconscious attempt to say, let's stop doing this, lads. Let's just not be the first mover here that provided somebody doesn't move first, um, nobody has to move. And that if somebody actually puts their prices up, we don't have to then go and advertise our lower prices. We can just put it prices up accordingly and it becomes tacit collusion rather than explicit is is there any evidence for this at all no i I don't believe there is chris because i I have written about and spoken about and analyzed over the years the competition in the retail grocery sector it has been intense and that intensity has obviously been driven by the growing market share of aldi and little and in fact in the last few weeks one of those i think it was aldi began the process cut milk prices by 10 cent and the others are following and now one of the others has cut bread prices so that there is intense competition in the marketplace but but at the end of the day chris and and i have spoken about this a year ago so i'm i'm not making up my history okay or saying stuff with the benefit of hindsight but i would have said 12 months ago in as the inflation debate was unraveling here that food was the one to watch because if you look at the dramatic increase in commodity prices, wheat and so on, um, it was and fertilizer and energy, all of the stuff that's used to produce food. Um, it wouldn't have taken a genius to figure out that this is going to result in higher prices for the consumer. And indeed, that has materialized. No surprises whatsoever. Uh, but those price increases to me do not in any way reflect any sort of tacit collusion between uh, the various retail multiples. I think they're still competing on a cutthroat basis. And I think you will see that competition intensify over the next six months again. So the consumer will be the winner, of course, but the big loser will be the primary producer or the farmer, in my view. Or the European taxpayer. 
Um, oh, well, or the European, of course, of course, that, that is the nature of the common agriculture policy. And, and, I, and I guess we could spend a whole podcast or two talking about the, the common agriculture policy. I was never a fan of it, I have to say, because um, I just don't believe anybody should be subsidised to produce something that's not required in the market. And, you know, we, we had over the years various surpluses, the Milk Lake, uh, the Beef Mountain and so on. Um, that never that never made sense to me, but um, it, it is what it is, and, and it does it does reflect the power of the agricultural lobby at a European level. But also, um, I mean, Europe has a strong agricultural heritage, and that sort of heritage was always going to be built into the um, European Union construct. I think there's no doubt about that. But 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 anyway, Chris, um, I, I I think we'll move on. But I, I think it, it before is before we do, Jim, is... can we can we just give our um, almost weekly uh, natural gas price update? Because it's always interesting to see what is actually happening to input and output prices. If and you cast the retail food thing in in those terms, the input price for our domestic gas prices is the wholesale price of gas. This peaked at around 350 euros per megawatt hour in Europe last summer. This morning, remember, 350 euros. This morning, trading at 34. 34, yeah. So uh, for anybody mathematically inclined, that's a big drop. Jim, uh, my gas price, the output price, if you like, um, that I am paying, uh, has fallen 0% in that time. How much has yours fallen? Zero. Ah, oh, there we go. So we're we're consistent yeah. across both sides of the Irish Sea. Um, so that, could, that that was my that was my main point, Chris. I'd much prefer to see our politicians focusing on this issue than barking up the food tree. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I think one gets head, easier headlines than the other. And, and I... In, in, in these days of, uh, you know, populist politics and the opposition in Ireland making all of the running, um, I, I don't blame them trying to get a cheap headline. But I think every, in a way it's a, it's, it's a pointless exercise because everybody knows what the game is. They are just getting cheap headlines. I was speaking at a conference in Dublin yesterday evening called the Wealth Summit uh, run by a company called Walford Private. And um, a guy came up to me afterwards suggesting that yourself and myself should put our names forward for the Late Late Show. What do you think? I already have, Jim. Isn't, isn't your name in the hat? <laughs> Let, let's move on, Chris, OK? This week we had a lot of stuff happening on, in, the, in the US. 
Um, headline inflation fell to 4.9%. Uh, the core rate fell to 5.5%. So it's moving in the right direction. And certainly there's a suggestion that, okay, energy is having a huge impact there. But also there's a suggestion that um, basically the higher interest rates that the Fed has delivered since March of last year starting to have an impact. But the Federal Reserve uh, published during the week its biannual is biannual every second year or twice a year? Don't ask, don't ask me questions like that, Jim. I always get it wrong. <laughs> it's twice yearly financial stability report. OK, and it, it was interesting. The Fed was warning about the possibility of a credit crunch after the recent banking turmoil. Um, it fears or believes that banks are becoming more risk averse, that they will tighten their lending standards because they're worried about loan losses. If the economy slows, they're worried about the loss of deposits. They're having to pay up higher interest rates to hold on to deposits. So that's squeezing their margins. Um, so, you know, the, the Fed is concerned that this what's going on in the banking sector will actually impact negatively on economic activity in a significant way over the next 12 months. And indeed, um, and this feeds into the Fed's financial stability indicator, the senior loan officer opinion survey published also during the week showed that banks do expect to tighten lending standards over the remainder of the year. They're concerned about recession. They're concerned about the withdrawal of deposits. So I suppose what we're really seeing here is the um, ongoing impact of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, and the possibility that this may um, fundamentally change the nature of the banking market over the next 12 months, at least, with economic consequences. Mind you, um, it is kind of interesting to hear the Fed coming out warning about these things, but yet the Fed has been the driver of these things. So the Fed presumably is not terribly upset about all of this because it, it, it has manufactured it by increasing interest rates so aggressively. Um, so despite all of those uh, banking concerns and the impact on future credit, the cost of credit, the availability of credit, um, the early indication is that the bank profits in the first quarter in the United States were up by 33% to about $80 billion dollars. Okay, and um, there's 4,400 banks in the United States and just 197 of those made losses in the first quarter. So despite all of those travails, the profitability of the banking sector held up very well in the first quarter. But of course, the, there's a lot less optimism about the remainder of the year because of those issues around paying higher deposit rates. Um, loan losses and so on because of the economic backdrop. Uh, but I, I think it, it does give an interesting snapshot of what's happening in the US banking sector. Um, we, we don't know quite as much about what's going on in Europe at the moment, but I, I suspect similar concerns will become evident um, over the coming months. Yeah, the, the right way to think about the US banking system is that we've got two shoes to drop. And we've had the first one, but we haven't had the second one. The first one was the combination of what in the jargon is called interest rate mismatching. And that meant that the uh, banks borrow short term overnight from the likes of you and me via our deposits and lend very long term to the US government. 
That is what they've actually done. They don't necessarily do that all the time, but that's what they did recently in order to pay us nothing on our deposits and to get something back from the US government. The problem was, was that the money that they lent the US government fell in price. The value of those loans to the US government uncharacteristically moved a lot, and that caused all sorts of problems. That's not unusual. It's not unique. I mean, interest rate mismatching causes banks all sorts of problems at all sorts of times throughout history, but it it is unusual. The more traditional shoe to drop is the second one, which hasn't dropped yet, which is loan losses, which is loan losses not to the US government, but to the likes of you and me, and for our cars, for our houses, our mortgages in particular. That hasn't happened yet because there hasn't been much of a slowdown in the US economy and they've still got full employment and all the rest of it. So people are able to service their debts. Will that change? Um, I think the answer to that is yes, because I think you will get a slowdown in the US. I don't know. Um, As you know, I don't like forecasting. But if you were to get a recession, this second banking shoe would drop. And I just worry about the feedback and the multiplier effects of all of that. When you've got a shaky regional banking system because of the interest rate mismatches shoe that has already dropped, combined with the second one, which will affect all banks to a greater or lesser extent. If there is a mild slowdown in the States, this won't be a big problem. If there's a big slowdown that causes feedback effects, such that the credit losses cause the banks, as you say, Jim, to tighten standards, to do all sorts of strange things then we have a problem. Tightening standards has two elements to it. One is the price of the loans and secondly, the quantity. And what we mean by tightening lending standards is that their price goes up. So if you want to borrow money, you've got to pay a higher interest rate than you would otherwise have done. And also the absolute amount the banks are willing to lend is capped at a lower level than would otherwise be the case. The banks don't have to lend. Um, Often it seems that we think that they do. Their behaviour suggests that they lend too much, which is why they have loan losses in the first place. And we get all of those sorts of behavioural quirks. But I still think that because of this second shoe yet to drop, and it may never do, but if it does, I think that we could be in for a whole heap of financial and therefore economic trouble starting in the United States. So I'm constantly on watch for it. I noticed that overnight... One of those regional bank share prices collapsed again. That's more an interest rate mismatch story than a credit story. But whatever the story is, this banking issue is still rumbling on in the United States. And I am far from confident that it's over. Okay, moving back across the Atlantic again, the Bank of England yesterday delivered its 12th interest rate increase, quarter percent taking the base rate now up to 4.5%. I think that's the highest since 2007 or 2008. Uh, But it was interesting, the Bank of England's assessment of the economy, it basically came out with its hands up and said, we were wrong, the UK economy is not going into recession. We're expecting stronger growth this year and next year. And um, as I read that yesterday, I was smiling to myself, thinking about my arch-pessimist over in Cardiff, um, who has been digging the grave for the UK economy for some time now. How do you react? Can I just say to you, Jim, I'm going to give you five numbers. Minus 0.1, plus 0.1, plus 0.1, minus 0.1, and minus 0.3. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a vigorous, growing economy? You know, you know that the first first four numbers are what we did in each of the four quarters of 2022. Okay. Minus 0.3 is actually what we just did in March. We have yeah, monthly but Chris, estimates. But Chris, 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 you need to, to, to admit as well to the listeners 
that March was characterised by unseasonally wet weather and a lot of strikes. There's always reasons for negative growth, Jim, but the fact is it was negative growth. I, unlike the Bank of England, I should say, have never purported to be an economic forecaster. I bored you to death with that one, Jim, and our listeners far too often. Um, and I'm not surprised that the Bank of England got it wrong. Actually, from a forecasting point of view overall throughout time, the Bank of England get its, gets it right more often than most other forecasters. So I'm prepared to cut it some slack on this one. It is a forecast to which I listen. But it's put its hands up, as you say. It doesn't expect the UK economy to have a bad recession now. But it is still the case, Jim, that the UK is the only economy to have yet to get back to where it was pre-pandemic. That's where we're at. So we haven't had a recession, granted, so it's not as bad as we feared, but it is still hopeless. What we have, the big picture, those numbers minus 0.1 plus 0.1, so neither here nor there in any direction, is a story of a flatlining economy now. Really, give or take, for since the financial crisis. And you know, Jim, that's 15 years of it now. This is a real, real problem. It's a boiled frog syndrome in the sense that the absence of growth is not, doesn't feel as bad at any one point in time as an outright recession. Um, like everywhere else, we've got labour shortages, so it's, it's a weird flatlining economy, but it is sufficiently uh, robust, shall we say, to keep the labour market in some kind of decent shape. So the, the degradation that comes with a flatlining economy, the absence of growth, is very slow. And that's what I mean by boiled frog syndrome. But eventually the frog dies. And sooner or later, people are going to notice the degradation in the UK economy that comes from a flatlining growth picture. And believe me, it is degrading. Uh, ordinary life is degrading. And I could go through all of the usual things that I witter on about in terms of Britain's high streets, Britain's infrastructure, the National Health Service, the state of public services generally, the fact that our railways um, have worse timekeeping than does Ukraine. Um, and I've got done this many, many times before. I could go on. But honestly, Jim, uh, the UK, just think of it as boiled frog syndrome. And soon, one day, one day the frog is going to notice that it's being bored. And I don't know whether that means a transformation, a revolution, people finally picking up their pitchforks. But it, Jim, it's grim. And one day I think other people will recognise this, even you perhaps. <laughs> Chris, uh, the economy you describe in the United Kingdom is clearly one that um, our President Michael D. Higgins would actually yearn to have in this country. Yes, it's an absence of economic growth, which I think was the yeah, point of his speech great. last week, which is that, yeah. that you know, his criticism of the economics profession was, was very misplaced in a UK context because the UK has achieved what the, the, the President of Ireland wants for Ireland. And so has Venezuela, Cuba, etc. So it's great. It's great. Uh, Chris, what did you think of the announcement from the Minister for Finance here during the week about the Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, or whatever you want to call it, a rainy day fund? There is an argument that it's already raining here. We have serious pressure on housing, health, etc., that we should be putting more and more money of this money into those. What do you think? Well, it depends. we haven't seen the structure of it yet. And I know that one of the thing, reasons he's doing it in this way is because the, the legal structures need to be put in place. The, the stuff that normally goes on, you know, doesn't attract headlines. In order to get this thing done in a particular way, he's got to enact some legislation. He's got to put some procedures and processes and people in place to do this. And the, a debate has to be had about what this sovereign wealth fund will spend the money on. One of the things that it could do is, is buy back government debt 
and save the interest costs on, on that debt. Um, financially, that wouldn't necessarily be the right thing to do. It might in some circumstances. If the interest rate on that debt was eye-wateringly high, for example, that would be a good idea. But even with the rise in bond yields recently, the, the interest costs of the debt, although rising and a worry, a concern for the future, they, they're not really that pressing at the moment. And more importantly, the relative return, the return you can get on doing other things. The state could build a whole load of houses and be, just become a big landlord and get a return on its investment that way and still own the asset. That's something the sovereign wealth fund could do, theoretically at least. Um, the, the, the state could do all sorts of things. It could just simply do what Norway's sovereign wealth fund does and buy uh, global equities uh, in, a, in a very passive way. And, and Norway has a stake in every listed company and quite a lot of unlisted ones in the world. Ireland could do that and get the return from, from stock markets, which uh, I think they'll end up with a hybrid. I think they'll do a bit of everything. And ultimately, that's going to be quite sensible. But the issue will be accountability and measurement and whether or not, in fact, at the end of the day, this sovereign wealth fund achieves a rate of return over and above the uh, rate of return it would have got if we simply bought back Ireland's debt. Whether or not we ever, we ever get to that point remains to be seen. But I think the setup of it will be very much in that context that financially it has to make sense, economically it has to make sense, and of course, politically, it has to make sense. Making sure all of those ducks are lined up is going to be critically important. But it, it all strikes me as actually been quite sensible. Chris, you wanted to say something about a piece you read in The Economist about bananas. Yes, indeed. Um, we've all heard, heard of NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And Badgett in The Economist this week talk about, talks about the new fault line in British politics, which essentially is between those that want to build things and those that do not. And this is present in all sorts of different economies. You've got NIMBYs in the United States. You've got them definitely in Ireland and in the UK as well. Badgett and others have pointed to a demographic divide that underlies this attitude that older people don't want to build anything because they're very happy with their lot. They don't want anybody building extensions or blocks of flats near them or roads or hospitals or anything really. Um, and younger people who want everything built because they so badly need all of those things. I think that the, I think that's right up to a point, but I do think that it's really a divide between the comfortably off, who don't want their comforts disturbed, and the ones who are not comfortably off. And often that, of course, is well-off people versus not so well-off people, which often is older people versus younger people. Not always, but often is the case. So these things can become conflated. But... Um, the UK has become an economy that doesn't build because the power rests with these people that do not want to build anything. And in fact, in the UK, according to Badgett, then they're, as well as being called NIMBYs, they're called bananas, which is an acronym that stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. And that captures, I think, the spirit of this, that the, one of the reasons why the UK, perhaps even the main reason why the UK just doesn't do anything anymore, doesn't invest in itself, doesn't build anything um, and therefore doesn't grow for 15 years is because of these bananas. So it's a warning to what happens to your economy if you let these people get too much power. And Jim, I would just say to you, uh, just be very careful with this. And there was a, a note, uh, an idea in this budget article that talked about Liberal Democrats. Because they face both ways all the time, successfully. So when it comes to building, they can say, we are we want to build hundreds of thousands of houses every year. The UK needs more houses. Build, build, build. 
and but at the local level, when it actually comes to planning permission being sought to build a few of these houses or and or apartments, they always oppose it. Does that remind you of anybody in Ireland? It reminds me of Sinn Féin, People Before Profit and the Labour Party. Exactly. Constantly bitching on about the need for more housing, and yet they object to every housing development that's proposed. I'll leave it there, Jim. Good to talk, Chris. Thanks, Jim. Speak next time. See you next time, yeah. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 